This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCray. We hear terms like sustainability and climate change quite a bit these days in the industry of agriculture, but how do you sort through that information to find what you need to know and act upon? We take a look at what's happening now and what we can expect in the future. How will these topics shape the upcoming farm bill? How will they drive carbon markets or even impact the crops we grow? We take a global topic to the farm level, and it's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now, that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. In times of rising nitrogen costs, it's good to know that you have a product applied right to the seed that can be a proven nitrogen source. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or just go to pivotbio.com. Over the years, Jason Clay has been a regular guest on our show. You may recall that Jason and I both grew up on farms in northwest Missouri, yet we've never met in person, but enjoy our discussions on this program. Jason speaks to groups literally around the world, including many farm-related groups in this country. He today works with the World Wildlife Fund and is Senior Vice President Markets, Executive Director, Markets Institute. What that means is Jason has a very good perspective on global issues impacting agriculture and can bring them down to the farmer level since that's where he began life, on a small Missouri farm. Some of the topics we discuss can be provocative in farm country, things like carbon, sustainability, and climate change. Yet Jason brings a perspective that's important for those of us in agriculture to hear, since this is the discussion that will continue to drive changes in what we do and how we do it. Here's our conversation. Jason Clay joins me. Jason has been a regular guest on this program. Jason and I hail from the same area of northwest Missouri. Specifically, he grew up near Ford City in King City, Missouri. That's my old high school. Uh, Jason now works with the World Wildlife Fund, and he may tell you a bit about that position, but every time we talk, we're talking about not only national issues, but global issues. And Jason, I wanted to get into the conversation that we many times have on a lot of these programs dealing with sustainability, uh, carbon credits, these type of things. Why don't I just start with this? In the, the year since we've visited, what have you seen as the biggest changes in these types of programs? Are we making progress at a pace that you suspected? What do you find has happened in the last year? I think that maybe the biggest change is in you know, COP26 teed up agriculture in Scotland, and then just recently COP27 in Egypt picked up that discussion. And there's been a lot of talk about what needs to happen and particularly what the role agriculture can play would be also the impact of climate change on agriculture, not just how agriculture could also contribute positively or in some cases less negatively to climate change. But I think it's still kind of talk. And as they say in Missouri, talk's cheap. Uh, and, and, And what we need to begin to see are actual markets, not just commitments. 
We need to people see people buying things, not just making commitments about 2030 or 2050 or whatever that they may or may not may not make. And so for me, a lot of the focus around the COP and elsewhere is around the environmental uh, impacts of farming and in particular, the impacts of climate change through the environment on on farming. How do we how do we both make today's farming more resilient and how can farmers get paid to do that because it's going to cost a lot of money to transition any of our global systems and food production and the food system is probably as big a system and certainly as big a contributor and sector that feels the impacts of climate change as anything else so i think that we're going to have to be really creative about how we finance this we're we know there's never going to be enough money in the budget of any government to do this and governments have all kinds of increasing claims to the money that exists. So how do we repurpose any kind of ag subsidy crop insurance programs to really reflect the needs that are coming with climate change? So one, one little example is maybe we should be thinking more about how to ensure farmers who are innovative and taking risk about developing new strategies, about bringing new crops into a rotation system because the old ones are becoming marginal now because of climate change, too hot to grow corn in certain parts of the country, et cetera. What, what is the crop that's going to pay them and who's going to cover that cost of that learning curve? Well, crop insurance could be really helpful for that rather than simply paying on a county average, anybody who's below that, who probably frankly was always below that because the soil wasn't as good or whatever. It's crazy to be paying those kinds of payments using scarce money for that. Let's be using our money to anticipate the system we need rather than trying to maintain the system that we've got that's already starting to decline. So I think with government programs, it's one thing, but we also need to see markets start lining up. We've got to figure out how markets can, we can use markets to change markets. So how can markets generate the funds for this? One way would be to, to have longer term contracts. And, and what we're seeing is five, 10, 15, 20 year contracts. Uh, between downstream buyers and actual producers. Because if you make them between downstream buyers and, and middlemen or traders or distributors or feed companies or whatever, the farmers are never going to get that money. Or they're only going to get some portion of it, which is not really enough to cover their cost because it's the cost of producers that actually need to be incurred right now and need to be covered by somebody downstream that benefits from that. And so I think there's more and more now attention focused on how do we line the interest of farmers and buyers, because they're all going to need a more resilient system for food to, to survive. And that means investing in not just planting trees, but also investing in organic matter, uh, investing in increasing organic matter, both on and in soil. That's, that's probably the best climate strategy, certainly the best uh, erosion control strategy, downstream water stream flow year round, water quality year round, more more organic matter in fields and on fields uh, is going to be the trick. So who pays for that? Are companies willing to pay outright for that? And we're seeing that some are. Are companies willing to give you a contract that allows a producer to go to a bank and borrow money to invest in a, something that's gonna take five years to repay because the contract is for 10 or 20 years? So how do we build up soil? Organic matter, again, is probably the best. There's companies buying carbon in soil, but I think that's not actually probably the best way to go. Or 
organic matter, when you increase organic matter, you reduce pesticide use, you reduce fertilizer use, you reduce water use, um, you have more water storage so you can deal with drought, not not entirely, but you better than your neighbor if they don't do it. But we've we've got to figure out how to to do that because if you're if people are buying carbon, that carbon with two years of row, a row of drought, it's gone. I mean, it it just carbon volatilizes very easily, and so does that organic matter. But we're I don't I don't think farmers are going to be selling organic matter. I think they're going to be selling avoided emissions, or reduced emissions, or higher organic matter in the soil that will be more resilient from it for a longer term contract and a down, down downstream supplier. So these are how we have to start thinking about this as partnerships between buyers and sellers, not as adversarial re- relationships that where every half penny counts. And there's some key bottlenecks in this, just to get it, to be frank about this. Traders are not willing to do this now. In fact, they're not willing to tell downstream buyers where the problems are. Uh, where are the bigger impacts? You know, who needs the most help? To if, if you're a downstream buyer and you want to improve your supply chain, you don't work with the best producers. You work with the worst producers because those are where you get the biggest gains. And so, you know, this is touchy stuff, but it's got to happen. This is where we really have to use the data to improve. And and there's a big range between how farmers using the same basic systems, how different they are in terms of their impacts. 10x is what we're finding. 10 times difference in terms of water, in terms of land, in terms of um, soil health, in terms of, of soil erosion, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's for one way of producing corn. But if you look at all the different ways to produce corn around the planet, the differences between the best and the worst are 100x. And that's just one commodity. Where do you think that companies stand right now in making this happen? Because I think for a lot of farmers, they feel like that they are at the mercy of whatever these national companies will come up for programs. And you mentioned the longer-term contracts. I think many are worried about a long-term contract in a system in which they don't know what's coming. In fact, one large company just touted one-year contracts because that's enticing to farmers. So how do you build a system or how does this begin to come together? I think in the case of, of the kind of farming that happens in the Midwest, the long-term contracts can be multi-year, but they always need a price-finding mechanism. And the price-finding mechanism has to be fair to everybody. So it can be the average price in Chicago discounted to the place that it's being purchased in terms of transportation. But it's got to be, and you can even take a little bit of that sting out by doing a three or five-day moving average. These are This isn't rocket science. The point of a long-term contract is to not benefit one party over the other. The point of the contract is to make sure that neither party benefits at the expense of the other, but both are actually working together to try to make the producer and the production and the product more sustainable. You have written about talking about repurposing stranded assets, and I think it would be interesting to talk about some of those, including, I think you talk about USPS here, and I'm just curious about what you see as some of those assets and how to make this kind of happen in rural America. You know, if you if you look around and and you see there are always bits of infrastructure or machinery on every farm, on every in every rural area that aren't used anymore or rarely used. Um, and so the question is, how can you take those and turn them into a more profit generating kind of activity? 
not all stranded assets can be used, but but a number of them can. And and one for a good example for this for food at least is the U.S. Postal Service. I don't know if you know or not, but the Postal Service. When I was a kid, we got our chicks in fifty chick boxes. We'd have five or six or seven every year delivered in March when it was not too cold, but just enough that they could survive. And we'd grow them all summer and eat them and 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 then freeze them and whatever. The post office was always involved in food. In fact, the post office until 1920 or so shipped children because it was cheaper than putting them on trains. And they put stamp on stamps on the children. And then they decided that they better stop that. But but we can bring the post office back to the point of delivering food from farmers directly to consumers. No, every they they deliver to every address in the U.S. Nobody else does that. And they do it daily or five days a week or six days a week. So we could set these up within one postal code to set up a box that's five pounds of produce, a box that's 10 pounds of produce. And farmers don't have to be producing all the different things. Four or five or 10 could join together and have a hub and, 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 and do distribution that way. And, and we could use this type of system to not, it wouldn't, I don't think it would necessarily, it might reduce the cost. We've looked at, at this. I think it's part of the farm bill now. It's actually a line item maybe uh, in one of the, the farm bill antecedents. But it's it's going to allow food to be delivered to urban and rural food deserts where there's just not much food available. I mean, as we both know, a lot of the grocery stores in small towns have shut and in rural areas. And so that's a, a big issue. We know that's true also with, with First Nations but it's true in highly dense city areas where people don't have access to food and where older people, it's harder to get out. Imagine that it would be easier for them or, or in a rural area with older people. You know, you could go through VFWs and have a big batch of food distributed and subdivided among people who need it. I mean, there are lots of ways to think about this, but we've got to start thinking about them. And so th- it'd be interesting to see if there's a group of farmers that would start working through their post office to do this. Uh, we've run some trials with the post office and, you know, you can't deliver fresh milk and you can't deliver highly perishable things, but you can deliver a lot of food this way. We're also just taking a, an area of downtown St. Louis. We've been working for two or three years to identify the proper area, the, the right facility, the right corporate partner. And in January, I think we're breaking ground on a five-acre, 60-feet-tall indoor vertical ag project that's going to be the biggest in North America. This is where it gets really interesting. So in addition to producing food in the middle of a food desert, that food has a two- or three-week longer shelf life than when you ship it from California. It also employs local people. In fact, this particular company is not just employing people from inner city St. Louis, mostly African-Americans, but also people who've been formerly incarcerated. And so there's there's ways that you can trigger this. But if those areas are, those types of activities are going to be supported, we're going to figure out how to bring some finance in. And one of the things that we've talked with the developer of this project about is if we could bring five or 10 million of the total of 60 or 70 million he needs to, to finance this, as debt rather than equity, he would set up a profit sharing mechanism for all the workers in the plant so that so that it wouldn't be something that in 10 or 20 years, they'd have a 
that could sell out equity in a company. This would be something they'd see in their paycheck every month. Now, that's interesting. DeKalb and Pioneer used to have similar worker uh, equity positions in those companies. And, and my uncle was a plant breeder for DeKalb, and he said everybody from the janitor on up got the equivalent of about one month's pay as extra pay from the profits. Today, shareholders get all that. But it doesn't have to be that way. It could go back a bit to the way a way to finance this differently. As you think about farmers where not only we're from northwest Missouri, but really farmers across this nation, we hear these topics. And I think for a lot of us, including me, this is a bit scary because we're talking about some things that could be major changes on the farm. Talk to me about why I shouldn't be scared and why this could be a great thing and and something I can embrace and perhaps bring more profit to a farm. I'm suspecting that's how you see it. Yeah, but I, I guess... From my perspective, I would say doing nothing is going to be the worst thing you can do because you will be toast. You will be history. I don't see farmers, wherever they're living today in the U.S., I don't see them farming the same crops in 25 or 30 years. That's going to be a gradual transition. We're looking at corn and cotton and and soy and, and some wheats. And what we're finding is that those crops are moving north about 25 miles a year. I mean, I drove from St. Louis to uh, Columbia to give a talk, and I found 10 very large areas planted to sorghum. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. I've been predicting this for 10 or 15 years that sorghum is going to replace corn because it's a great dry land crop, a crop that deals with temperature. And also, China will pay 100 hundred dollar premium for it because it it's not gmo and so they're they're just these crops have different markets you got to think about each of them differently i mean think of it as an opportunity not as a as a hindrance but it means really looking at your land not from the point of view what can i plant to soy what can i plant to corn it's how can i use this land to make money in very different ways and optimal in all those different ways Jason, let's wind up with this. You mentioned the Farm Bill earlier, and certainly we are hearing more discussion as we think about the Farm Bill. What do you see in perhaps the upcoming legislation that would be moving towards some of these types of things? I mean, certainly it has been talked about in the past, but what types of things might we see that would be changes dealing with sustainability, carbon, climate, and so forth in an upcoming Farm Bill, do you believe? So I've got two things. I'm sure there are many, many things, but I've got two that I'd, I'd really just like to emphasize. One is the CRP land. So the Conservation Reserve Program land. It has never made sense to me that farmers had to keep that land mowed every year. From a biodiversity point of view, from a carbon point of view, that's exactly the opposite of what you want to happen. So I would say in the farm bill, continue to pay that for a certain period of time, but allow farmers to grow carbon and other things, tree crops, that they can actually sell the carbon or sell the nuts and the carbon or whatever. Even Osage Orange hedge balls actually can be produce an insecticide to keep, uh, to put into trash bags to keep cockroaches out of trash in cities. I mean, just, they're just things that people are not thinking about that could be quite, quite profitable. And then the other the other issue is the USDA is not really anticipating a couple of key issues. One, 
I had to create this data myself about how fast commodities are moving. That's not been published by the Farm Bill. That information should be analyzed and shown to farmers so they can make more uh, informed judgments about when to transfer a crop or when to switch a crop out and what other crops might be suitable based on what other farmers are doing. Because it's hard for farmers to get to know each other that don't already know each other, which means, you know, 50 or 100 miles away. But the government can actually serve that kind of big data function if they if they did it well. And the second piece is a lot of people talk about post-harvest loss uh, and, and food waste. And in the American system, we think it's mostly the loss and shrinkage in supply chains and what's in restaurants and what people leave in, on the plates or what they throw out of the refrigerator or whatever. Actually, one thing that's becoming bigger, well, first of all, harvest losses on farm are greater than we thought. It looks like four to five percent of corn and soy on average are not don't leave the field or don't leave the farm. And part of it's because they don't have enough storage. And so they they are stored outside for a while and they just lose some of it and other gets a bit moldy or whatever. But there's a lot that's left in the field because the machinery is very large and it's not always suited to to the terrain of the land. And so you have some that you miss and you have others that you you get uh you dig into. And so it's just, there's, there's, there's ways that that's happening. But the biggest thing I think we're missing entirely is what I call pre-harvest loss. We need to know what percentage of crop wasn't planted in the U S we need to know if it was eventually planted, was it the same crop, i.e. going to be less production because it was too late. Was it a different crop, i.e. going to be different pressure on different, different systems. If we don't start anticipating pre-harvest loss, climate loss, light loss that's that's linked to extreme weather, to to flooding, to drought, uh, to to hurricanes or or you know b- big events, and this is not just a U.S. issue. This is a global issue because we need to know what's going on in Brazil if you're an American farmer, because and they need to know what's going on in America and Australia and Canada and you know Ukraine and Russia as we see, so. We just need to be monitoring data real time so that we can anticipate things rather than react to them. Because when you react to problems, you're never in a great place. And in that regard, where's the next California going to be? Because it's not going to be in California. You know, we're putting a flag in, in Memphis and, and Arkansas in that area because, because we think they can produce a lot of what was in California there. It could just be as well be in between St. Louis and Kansas City in that area if it gets hotter. Right now, there's not enough water in the rivers to do it. Uh, and so that's an unanticipated thing we got to figure out. It's complicated. And if you're scared of something, I'd be scared of that. Before we wind up, on a lighthearted note, you mentioned something I've got to ask you about. Hedge balls or Osage orange, we've got them everywhere. Are they using them as insecticide in trash bags? Have you seen this done? i got to know about the market. No. So here, they're not. This is an idea I came up with 30 years ago when I was doing the Brazil nuts because I started talking to a lot of different companies and, and I was looking for essential oils and other things. And, it, and I came across some work that showed that, that people would put hedge balls in, in uh, underneath ca- sinks and cabinets or in clothes to keep insects out. And I thought, what the hell? Let's see. Why don't we look into that? But I, I talked to like SC Johnson and all these companies that made plastic bags and garbage bags. And I couldn't get anybody to bite the bullet on it. Well, 
you know, maybe the University of Missouri on extension could do that. I mean, they're talking about pawpaws and persimmons, and that's great. But we already got hedge apples. You know, there's a plenty of hedge apples. That's right. I've, I've been trying to figure out the market on this for quite a while because I've got plenty of them. And, and many of us listening to this know what those are. If you're around them, you know, and if you, you aren't, you don't. But uh, yeah, if we could figure out a use for them, we could all get rich, huh? Well, it's it's the it's the Osage Orange tree that was native to Oklahoma and southwest Missouri and southeast Kansas and then was used by farmers before they had fences and they would plant these trees so close. And then as children, some of us had to cut those fences because they were so big and gnarly and make them into fence posts. And that was some of the hardest work on a farm, as I recall. Well, Jason, I always enjoy the time to be able to visit. You always bring a lot of topics that are ones for us to think on because you're certainly connected nationally and globally. And so I always appreciate the time to talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I, I too, enjoy this, this opportunity to talk about issues that are near and dear to my heart and actually where I grew up. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.